just a quick message from me, Rebecca Adil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, series two of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. <laughs> Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. You can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. <sighs> and breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Rise and Fall of Shaka Zulu. It's September 1828 and we're in the Zulu Kingdom of Southern Africa. For the past few months, the 41-year-old Zulu chief, Shaka Zulu, has been ruling with increased brutality. The death of his beloved mother has caused a chain reaction of violence, with Shaka ordering the deaths of thousands of subjects. His exhausted army has been sent to the north on yet another military operation. With the leader unusually vulnerable, a small group of conspirators, led by his half-brothers, decide to make their move. While one distracts him, the others assassinate him. the extraordinary life of Shaka Zulu, I'm joined by historian and writer Luke Papera. Luke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Today we're going to be looking at the life and death and legacy of Shaka Zulu, who you have a particular interest in, I understand. I do. I do have a particular interest. Well, see, I was not only was I always a fan of uh, the, the Zulu generally, and my father used to actually have these sort of toy soldiers which portrayed, you know, the very famous Anglo-Zulu conflict. And I watched the film with him. And then there's obviously the 80s show about Shaka Zulu. And he's always been a really, really fascinating character and, you know, ambitious and very strategically minded and, and powerful and essentially forms a lot of the modern kingdoms in South Africa today are formed because of him as, as part of his legacy. And he's just always been an incredibly fascinating character so I have always had from actually from from fairly early childhood fascination with him. So let's go right to the beginning then and um, can you please transport me and the listeners to the early 19th century and he just becomes the leader. Could you just describe his early life? I mean I think he was considered an illegitimate child and the rest of it. If you could give us paint the picture that would be great. Yeah, so Shaka Zulu is born in 1787 and he's the, he's the son of a Zulu chief or the Zulu chief called Zemzangankona and a princess of the Langeni tribe called Nandi. Now, 
At the time, the Zulu was actually a very minor, not very powerful tribe. They only number about 1,500 or so. And they are under the vassalage, essentially, of the larger Matetwa tribe. So when Nandi and Zenzangankona, these being Shaka's parents, are actually due to be married, they're actually engaged. And it's taboo for couples before they get married to have sexual intercourse, basically. But what is allowed is that they're able to engage in this kind of sexual foreplay without penetration that is allowed between couples that are uh, that are engaged what happens is that they engage in this in order to relieve sexual tension essentially but the story goes that they both get carried away and therefore nandi becomes pregnant and initially zenzangankona refuses he refuses to admit that it was him that got nandi pregnant and he dismisses it and he says it wasn't me it was actually this this sort of um, intestinal beetle called the aishaka um, and it's an intestinal beetle that that is able to get a woman pregnant and he said this is the reason why she's pregnant and then that beetle the name of that beetle basically becomes Shaka's name he's named after that so he's born illegitimate Nandi having been conceived before being married to his father Zenzangankona and because he's illegitimate son not only is he kind of cast aside by Zenzangankona himself you know he's given this job for example when he's a young boy of guarding the sheep he's sort of with him and and, and a pet dog he's guarding the sheep and he lets um he lets one of the sheep get killed or eaten and Zenzangankona you know castigates him and that even that kind of job being given that is not something that would be given to to a legitimate royal son and he's also bullied by the sons and the and the children of other royals and and even Zenzangankona's siblings you know some of his cousins etc and his half brothers and and sisters and they they you know they completely ostracize him and they make him drink you know in a different part of of the river and you know, all, all, all sorts of sort of quite horrendous, horrendous bullying. But his mother, even whilst, you know, Zenzangankona castigates him for letting the sheep get killed. And, you know, it's always his mother he can turn to. She protects him from, her, from, from his father. And she also is this kind of moral and emotional and physical support for Shaka Zulu throughout his whole childhood. And Nandi and Senzangankona do get eventually married. He makes her his third wife, but the relationship quickly breaks down. And Shaka is not actually very safe where in a region and at a time where because there are a lot of half-brothers, half-siblings, etc., assassinations aren't uncommon. And his mother, fearing this, initially takes him away and they go and live amongst her tribe, the Langeni. But even there, Shaka's illegitimacy and the fact that Nandi was pregnant before being married makes them you know taboo figures again shaka's is is bullied he has hot curds poured all over his hands and you know and he's and he's beaten and he's thrown in pits you know the, the sort of equivalent of you know teenager in an american film being thrown in the locker as a child he's small weak and weedy and he's just consistently getting bullied and so actually his mother again they they leave and they stay with the matetua clan whose leader is a man at the time called called job and then job dies very soon after they arrive and Job's son, a man called Dingaswayo, takes over. And Dingaswayo is a very, very effective, effective leader. And he takes to the young boy, Shaka, and his clan, the Matetwa clan, are one of the more powerful in the region. They control most of the, the, the local chieftains and, and a lot of the local kings and royal families pay homage to this clan and, and have to pay tribute, etc. So he, but, but Dingaswayo takes to the, to the young Shaka. As Shaka grows up, when Shaka becomes about 16, 
Dingiswayo seeing the young boy's um, intelligence and courage and character actually made him his own herd boy. And this is where, and Shaket seems, you know, being instead with the confidence that Dingiswayo bestows upon him or see, you know, sees him as, as, as a capable figure. He actually apparently saves the herd and kills single-handedly a leopard which is attacking it. And so Dingus Wire, being impressed by this, says that actually he was going to make a very, very fine soldier one day. Good grief! It sounds, or, you know, listening to this, it does sound unbelievable. It sounds like something that is written, you know, it's fictional, is in a Hollywood film, but this is his real life story and you feel that you kind of know what's coming next but could you tell me about you know his rise to to power then within this framework yes exactly well well i think it's 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 interesting and actually you can kind of you know and and i guess this is actually why some historians you know are look skeptically because a lot of this history of this oral some of it is written by by european travelers some of the first to actually meet shaka face to face i mean there's no doubt that he was a powerful warrior. There's no doubt, as we will come to see later on, there's no doubt that he reforms the Zulu, that he reforms warfare, that you know, all those that he's quite brutal, all those kinds of things. It might be slightly um slightly exaggerated, but even some of these, like the killing of the leopard, for example, being cast out and reclaiming your throne, these are story points actually that oral African historians use when they describe or are telling the story of someone who becomes very, very capable. And it's probably true as well that the person who becomes you know this leader as well it has a vested interest in these stories being as it were created and perpetuated in fact we see a similar story with Dingaswayo i think Dingaswayo when he's young is also cast out by his half brother and he also as he's when he's young or fairly young a teenager he kills the she lion for example and he ousts his brother and you know becomes king and grows the metetwa into a very very powerful clan through alliances etc we see the same thing with the founder of the mali empire sundiata keita who's also cast out incidentally again with his mother which shows you actually the importance of the, the mother-son relationship in african societies and the matrilineal is very 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 significant so sundiata is cast out and and again he's actually taken under the, the, the wing of the king further south and becomes a ruler takes back his kingdom and founds the malian empire dingiswayo founds the matetwa empire and shaka of course founds the zulu empire and so some of the story points are probably fact but are either exaggerated or you know some you know certain things you know might have been um invented and exaggerated in order to give a kind of legitimacy to the rule of these kings and marking them out as special people in a similar way in the, in european societies you have the divine right of kings this is the equivalent of marking someone out as being special as destined for greatness as, as destined to bring in golden ages or golden rules in a new kingdom Shaka became king of the Zulus in 1816 by seizing power from his younger half-brother. At the time, the tribe was fewer than 1,500 in number. However, under Shaka's leadership, the Zulu adopted a military culture which enabled unprecedented growth. The conquering and absorbing of neighbouring tribes swelled their numbers and expanded their land. Shaka is, at least you know, the record tells us, the oral history and the written record from European travellers, he's very brutal. Anybody who runs from a battle is immediately killed. Anybody, incidentally, who insults his mother or speaks badly of his mother is immediately killed. He's so, so afraid of, of having children, in fact, or having a son, that actually any concubines whom he sleeps with and whom he gets pregnant, he also kills if they're found to be pregnant. And this is because he, he actually ousts his own brother, 
with the help of Dingiswaya, when his father dies, he goes back to, to the Zulu tribe, stakes his claim essentially to the chieftaincy, to the throne, and kills his brother who was put in place by his father. His, 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 it's his half-brother. But yeah, so he's, I mean, he executes anybody, you know, at will, even sometimes for the smallest of offences. So he rules from the outset with an iron fist. And this, as well as actually some of the reforms he makes to, to military, makes the Zulu a warrior-like people. If you're male, especially, you are a warrior. And even if you're female, as, as well as having the male regiments, um, you know, the age-based regiments where the men are sleeping and, and eating, etc., you have female-based ones as well. And they are almost like the custodians, especially of Zulu, you know, dance and songs and culture. Um, so they do songs and dances for the warriors before and after they go to battle, that kind of thing. And when a warrior has served for a certain amount of time, he's married off to one of the women from this female-based regiment, essentially this female-based kraal settlement. But I think that the main thing is that it's um, it's quite a brutal regime. So you you need to you need to stay in line <laughs> if you want to live. And don't be don't be a male and be related to him by the sounds of things. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> or yes, um, or enter in, in, into any kind of emotional relationship with them. Or, but to be fair, in a lot of cases, there is an indication that, that one isn't given a choice. Shaka, even in his own regiment, you get a sense that actually he wasn't. He was more interested as a warrior in warfare than he was in, let's say, in having children or taking a wife or that kind of thing. Even the regiments, both the male and female ones, you know, sex between them is forbidden until they get married. And yeah, so even amongst soldiers, you know, sex is forbidden. And Shaka himself seems to have no interest really in taking a wife or having any heirs. And anybody who is, you know, made pregnant is, is you know, is killed. And he's more interested, it seems, in conquest and power and also revenge actually because when he expands his empire he first actually goes to the Langeni actually first goes to his mother's tribe and he kills all the people who had made his childhood misery um, and he puts their heads on the spikes of the settlement of the kraal as a warning it's interesting that's the first thing he does after Dingaswayo dies and Dingaswayo dies in battle with a rival tribe and then Shaka absorbs the Matetwa into the Zulu nation and, and then starts expanding his empire and one of the first places he goes is his mother's tribe and one of the first people he targets are those who had um, you know who had bullied him or threatened to assassinate him so he kills them first. Goodness me, he does, yeah, from what you're saying, it does seem that revenge definitely is something that, that's a driving force with him. Let's go to the things that he is in, interested in then, so the warfare and the military campaigns, just in terms of what we know, what were the basics of his achievements, for want of a better word, in terms of expanding his empire? Right. Well, Shaka is the great kind of military reformer and actually a lot of his techniques, I think actually some of the techniques he championed are used by some, or not probably not today because of cyber warfare, but definitely in you know in the late later 20th centuries and even early 21st century, his formations were used. He's most famous for developing what's called the bullhorn formation, which is essentially you split the army when you're attacking someone or when you're facing an enemy. You split the army into into three groups, and that is the chest the head and the loins and the chest is the main force which takes the enemy head on 
the head splits into two, into two horns, which encase the enemy. They enclose the enemy from both sides and the loins hang back as kind of a reserve regiment. And they actually sit back and they don't face the battle. They actually have their backs to the battle so that they don't get sort of unduly excited and rush in. And this strategy is incredibly effective. Um, you have the commanders or the advisors who are essentially the generals of the army direct people using different hand movements. But the beauty of this formation is in its simplicity. Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. You don't need to send orders and you don't need to make difficult or complex changes while in the midst of battle. Those who are in the chest part of the army know their jobs. Those in the horns know their jobs and the loins know their jobs as well. So if the enemy breaks through, the reserves at the back, the loins, know that they basically have to push forward. And it's, and it's all about encasing your enemy. And this is actually something, obviously, I'm not sure how he gets to hear of it. I don't know if they just develop it independently at the same time, but this is actually something I believe Napoleon also does quite effectively, is that he has this main regiment in the front and then he tries to enclose people from the sides, you know, using his cavalry. And then he has a uh, he has a regiment at the back. And obviously these are Shaka Zulu and Napoleon are contemporaries. So I speculate that I wonder, you know, how they both are kind of using this effective force. So he does that, but also he actually completely changes the landscape of South African warfare. Initially, when tribes fought each other, they would basically, it was, it was almost like they were playing, you know, like, like a, a game of cricket or something. They would, they would basically go to um, a location. They would agree, funnily enough, they would, agree to, they would agree to meet at a location and they'd basically hurl spears at each other from a distance of about 40 meters facing each other. And this was just not effective in terms of either killing people or, or, you know, gaining land or casualties or whatever, because, you know, they just hurl spears, the other people would defend them, then they'd pick up those spears that their enemies had thrown and throw them back. And they do this for like two or three hours. And then one side will get tired and basically retreat, you know, one, one side will get bored and basically retreat. And only very rarely would the other army chase them. And even if they did chase them, the enemies who were retreating could basically drop their spears and surrender and then the chasers would actually go home. So you didn't have any conquest or you didn't have many casualties at all. And what Shaka does is he changes, he introduces a new type of spear called an ikwa, and this is mimicking the sound of when the spear stabs you and is pulled out. But basically it's a short-handed spear or it forces you to fight your enemies at close quarters and it is also lethal you know it's not just throwing a spear and hoping it you know might or might not kill an enemy you have to go close to your enemy and, and stab them yourself so it forces this close quarter fighting so this this leads to a greater number of casualties and shaka also changes the mentality of fighting it's no longer just a sport it's about conquest and it's about extermination. Whenever Shaka defeats an army or a tribe, he kills all the men of fighting age and he subsumes the young boys who he raises in you know, the Zulu culture as warriors and the women as well, who are supposed to give birth to the next great warriors of the Zulu empire. You know, he's taking it all. He's, he's playing essentially to win. And it's this mentality of conquest and of victory combined with the more practical reforms that he makes with changing the spear and changing the battle formations and the battle strategies that allow the Zulu to conquer so many territories and tribes and villages. I mean, they initially, um, as I said in the, the beginning, they numbered about 1,500. And thanks to 
Shaka's exploits at the height of the Zulu Empire, the population numbers about 200,000 um, and it's subsumed about 300 formerly independent kingdoms. And the training is really harsh as well. He forces his, uh, his, his soldiers to run bare feet. He discards sandals and they have to run bare feet on, on thorns as well in order to toughen their souls. And younger soldiers have to carry the equipment of older ones, so there's even that hierarchy in that sense. Um, and they're living in these different in these different crafts. So he makes essentially all the men of of, of Craig Tage, You know, he raises them to be brutal warriors. It sounds like a, a really intense life that he's lived, but we know with hindsight that he was. He died prematurely. I'm conscious that we don't have lots of time left, but I wonder if you could tell me about the events that lead up to this assassination of Shaka Zulu and also what it meant for the kingdom and also what it meant more more widely in terms of his legacy and impact. Of course. So the story of Shaka Zulu's um, assassination essentially begins with the death of his mother, his mother to whom he was incredibly close. She dies in 1827 of dysentery. And Shaka essentially has what is described as a, as a mental breakdown. And people less sensitively um, describe it as going mad. He becomes erratic and he becomes unreasonable in his behavior. He starts grieving or, you know, because of the depths of his grief, he's acting very, very dangerously. And the ways in which he's acting is very damaging for the Zulu population. So, for example, he kills 7,000 people who he says aren't grieving enough. He orders that no crops be planted or no milk be used. And milk is one of the more important foodstuffs for the Zulu nation because cattles are very, very important. So there was a risk of famine and starvation. He has calves slaughtered so that the cows would know what it was like to lose their mother. He has all women who are found pregnant. He has them and their husbands killed. And then he sends his armies on grueling expeditions first to the south. And then when they come back expecting a period of rest, he immediately orders them to go and, 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 and defeat more armies in the north. It is said that it is this final act of sending the armies, which basically is, is, becomes a straw that breaks the camel's back. Not only are his generals, including his two half-brothers, Dingane Malangana, not only are they, you know, annoyed at this, but, you know, the, 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 the scale of Shaka's brutality has basically become untenable for a lot of the members of, of the, um, especially the original Zulu tribe and the, and the Zulu empire, perhaps more widely. So his brothers, Dingane and Malangana, conspire with one of his chief advisors, a man called Mbopa, to assassinate him. And this is actually while the armies are in the north because he sent them to the north as soon as they've come back from the south. His palace is, isn't very well guarded. So the two brothers are able to go into the palace, probably being let in by Mbopa. And it's not known who actually delivers the, the final blow, but they murder him, they assassinate him, and they dump his body in an empty grain pit, which they fill with stones and mud disguising the location of his resting place. So actually, I think to, to this day, no one knows exactly where he's buried. And his final words are apparently, hey, brother, you kill me thinking you will rule, but the swallows will do that. And when he said swallows, he was referring to the Europeans who made their houses in, in South Africa of mud like swallows. And this was at the very, this Shaka's rule was, was really where you start to see especially British encroachment in South Africa, which obviously becomes more intense later. But he predicts in his death that actually not only will, the, will his brothers kill them you know kill each other but all of this fighting 
and infighting between the African chiefs is going to lead to the Europeans ruling in the end. And almost as soon as uh, Shaka is killed, one of his prophecies at least comes true because Dingane actually kills Elamangana. So he kills his other half-brother and ascends the chieftaincy. And then he immediately sets to destroying and killing everybody who was pro-Shaka, who was one of Shaka's supporters. But he faces challenges actually later on, um, especially with the European encroachment, and I think is actually assassinated himself. And just quickly in terms of Shaka's legacy, I mean, the, the, the conflicts and the wars that he waged on other tribes essentially led to a lot of migrations and destroyed cities and destroyed tribes and clans. And a lot of the surviving members migrate outwards and basically start doing what the Zulu had done to them. Um, you know, certain chiefs who had escaped go further into the interior of Africa, into different regions, and they start essentially oppressing the people there, subsuming other tribes, etc. This is known as the Mefakane, or the crushing, all these different groups migrating to other areas and establishing new kingdoms by waging war on other communities. And some of the kingdoms, like the Lesotho kingdom, still survives today, and that was actually formed because of the initial warfare by the Zulu driving um, you know, the founders of that kingdom to different areas where they also waged war on others and established new kingdoms. My goodness, what a dynasty and what a kind of ripple effect. Do you think the history of the region would be very different had Shaka Zulu not existed? Or do you think what he did was something that was waiting to happen and somebody else would have done it otherwise? Something that was waiting to happen, I think. It's interesting that you make that point. I mean, another thing to consider is actually, this is, like I said, at the beginnings of European encroachment and the Boer especially. Their influence is increasing, their power is increasing, and they're actually allying sometimes with different African chiefs and laying claim to land and even with their writing, you know, inventing certain fictions and certain claims to land as well. Um, so we might have actually seen, if not for Shaka, more Boer dominance in South Africa. But I mean, conflict between the tribes, I mean, don't forget before there was Shaka, there was Dingaswayo, who essentially teaches Shaka all that he knows. I think Shaka is known for being particularly brutal and for being, you know, almost takes the lessons from Dingaswayo and, you know, you know, as it were, turns Dal up to eleven. You know, he takes all these learn from Dingaswai and, and goes and becomes even more extreme. But you see, I think what's interesting actually is the time frame is probably not something that another African ruler could have done only because not only would have would they have been facing other tribes, but they also would have been facing you know much more European contact and different interest groups um, who want to lay you know lay claim and access. Um, you know, things like um, you know diamonds and gold and, and slaves and all that type of stuff. So having to fight both enemies on the interior and external enemies, the Europeans especially, probably would have been too much for a single ruler to handle. So I think Shaka basically, he's able to achieve what he did because of the very specific time in which he came to power. Again, fairly similar to Napoleon, who's only able to rise through the ranks because of this, you know, then I think it's when he when he enters the military college and because of wars or something taking place, you know, he's able to rise quite quickly through and he's able to learn a lot as he goes along. And he's only able to do that because, you know, he's one of the few people of the military college. Again, it's that being born at that time gives Shaka the opportunity to achieve all that he does. This has been so fascinating. Thank you, Luke. The kingdom that Shaka Zulu founded dominated the eastern coast of southern Africa for most of the 19th century. This is-